You're listening to Business Extra, coming from the Nationals Newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm your host, Kelsey Warner. And I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Yu, CBE and Adjunct Professor of Economics at London Business School and the author of the new book, The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. Dr. Yu, hello. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So an intriguing title in the times that we live in. I feel like, as a journalist at least, I'm very burnt out on the phrase recession fears. Uh, But it seems like something we've been talking about, it has been something we've been talking about since the start of 2022. It's been around for a while as a concept. And you were writing your book towards the end of 2022. Can you talk to us a little bit about the timing of writing this and the moment we're in? Absolutely. So um, the book came out uh, literally uh, just um, a few weeks ago. I've been writing it for about three years. And so one of the things that um, was absolutely fascinating was a couple of things. One is I was involved in a review of the UK banking system. And so that in and of itself was fascinating because that gave me some insight into the cycles of financial crises, which is what this book is about, that financial crises do occur with alarming regularity and that we must learn lessons because not every bus generates a recession, which can be extremely damaging for people's livelihoods. Some busts are just uh, a bust. Um, so you can think of a stock market crash. So I certainly saw that in the period in which I wrote the book. Um, I include the COVID-19 crash, which was absolutely, um, the speed of which was absolutely astounding. Um, and then you fast forward to what happened a year ago with, you know, with um, the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, The tech bubble started to collapse in November 2021. And so the past year has been an absolutely eventful, um, uh, you know, eventful, not in a not in a good way, but eventful in terms of seeing a history repeat itself in some sense, because what we have, you mentioned there, recession fears. Um, For the very first time, um, we had a global pandemic. We hadn't seen that for a century. And then we had a global supply shock on energy, which we hadn't seen since the 1970s, which plunged economies into what I describe as recessionary. Um, In other words, you know, high inflation, high cost of living with stagnant economies. That's a combination which, of course, unsurprisingly, has become a cost of living crisis. And that is something, again, which I do also write about in the book and the lessons we can learn from what happened, um, you know, in the 1970s, early 1980s to try and prevent um, this crisis from becoming a global meltdown. You write in The Great Crashes through a series of cautionary tales from, you know, currency crises, currency crises, the Japan housing crash, the dot-com boom and bust, the COVID-19 pandemic, all of these things you say are instructive and you frame them through this idea of three distinct phases of euphoria, credibility, and aftermath. Can you talk a little bit more about these three distinct phases and what we are meant to learn from each of them? Yeah, thank you very much for the question. So the book is around 10 great crashes, all since really learning lessons from the 1929 crash, but most of the crashes actually start in the 1980s. So it's been a pretty uh, full-on time and every crash is different, but the three phases you can see in every crash and that's where the lessons come from. So the first one is euphoria. There's always this human belief that asset prices can only ever go up. So that's, that's understandable, except try not to pile in with too much debt. So the lesson there is debt-fueled crises, especially those that bring down banks, are the most devastating. The second phase is credibility. 
So in order to resolve a crisis, um, the resolution is different for every crisis, but they share the trait of having to be credible. The policy needs to be credible. The policymakers need to be credible. And there must be institutions to ensure a quick resolution. So the example I give there is Japan. Um, the International Monetary Fund says the first 10 months of a crisis are crucial. And after four years, it becomes problematic. Japan took eight years and it resulted in lost decades of growth. And then the third phase is the aftermath. So there are some crises which really have no impact on the real economy, on people's lives. So uh, the biggest stock market crash to date um, was in 1987 um, in the United States, and there was hardly a blip in terms of economic impact. However, you go to the dot-com bubble crashing in the early 2000s, and you have a recession. So the great crashes are all financial crises of varying stripes that lead to economic misery. And the subtitle of the book is Lessons from These Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. And how to prevent them is to recognize those three distinct phases and to make sure you control the amount of debt and you have credible and quick policymaking so that the aftermath, hopefully, um, is that it's just a plain vanilla bust and not um, a meltdown. I want to stay on the dot-com bust for just a minute because I think it's one of the most vivid examples that we have that is possibly repeating itself right now. Massive question mark for you later. But dot-com bust, talk to us a little bit about the irrational exuberance of the late 90s into 2000 and what set the table for that. And ultimately, there wasn't a major hangover from that recession. Can you talk about how the recovery took shape and what lessons we can take from that? Yeah, absolutely um, an important one to focus on because we are in the middle of a tech crash of sorts. Um, Compared to November 2021, some internet companies, um, tech companies, consumer-facing companies, their share prices are down 80%. Um, So what happened in the dot-com bubble? You also saw that degree of collapse um, in terms of share prices after a multi-year buildup. And this is where the term irrational exuberance was coined. So I talk about euphoria, um, how euphoric or how exuberant was this belief that uh, it's this incredible, you could buy something on the internet and not have to go to a physical store. E-commerce was on the cusp of was on the cusp of becoming a major factor. And so investors uh, piled into uh, dot-com companies. And that's why it was coined irrational exuberance, because these companies, you know, which had barely, uh, certainly didn't turn a profit, barely was making uh, revenues, were gaining massive amounts of investments and then valuations uh, when they IPO'd, when they became public, which were just sky high. So one sense, maybe, uh, the companies are just ahead of their time because e-commerce is now ubiquitous with us today. And they were trying to sell stuff on the internet when broadband wasn't widely available. And a lot of households were still using dial-up modems. So the web pages wouldn't load properly. They were a little early for their customers. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then some of them, of course, and this is the case with every bust, um, just made bad business decisions. And the problem with these kinds of euphoric bubbles is people just pile in. Um, So everybody wanted to be a dot-com millionaire. Mm. And you see a company like Garden.com, where the founders 
um, were not experts in gardening, hadn't worked in gardening before, taught themselves gardening, but then turned out they didn't even really like gardening and didn't even like it as a hobby. So you just had a huge amount of influx of money. Um, and that is a parallel to today. You write about, sorry to interrupt, I just want to continue on that thread and talk a little bit about the bandwagon effect that you write about, yes. this pile-on effect of people saying, this can only go up and up and up. This is so promising. I need I need to get in on this. And then our mechanisms for having a bandwagon effect here in 2023 are much more sophisticated than they were 25 years ago. Our ability, you reference E-Trade and you know the introduction of retail investors, that has exponentially boomed. And now we're in a state, it's not gardening, it's generative AI. <laughs> it's a slightly different topic, but potentially the scale, the stakes are are as high, if not higher. Do you see echoes of this bandwagon effect? Are there things happening today that are happening faster, bigger? It's certainly faster. And there has been a, a large amount of money that have piled into um you know, uh, the modern day dot coms. Obviously, nobody calls them dot coms anymore because it's a little <laughs> bit. Uh, no one wants to be a dot com. But certainly, you see the um, the internet companies. Um, if you compare their forward PE ratios, price to earning ratios, there's a lot of correspondence between the valuations at the height of the dot com bubble and the valuations as they were in 2021 that have since come down. The speed of the investments is what's different now than versus the late 1990s. So their the ability to uh, to to pile into investments is even faster. Um, and so this is why I think learning the lessons is even more important. So one of the challenges um, of uh, using debt or investing on margin is what happens when the bubble deflates and you can't repay that debt. So. That, to me, is one of the things to watch out for. And the second thing to watch out for is the dot-com bubble, when it burst, um, dragged the U.S. economy into a recession, but a mild recession. GDP, national output, contracted by just 0.3% between March and November of 2001. And it was actually surprising how mild it was at the time, because it also included the period 9-11. And that was part of the explanation. There were a lot of um, policies and incentives put out by car companies that I write about to support demand. So there are reasons why it was mild. But one of the main reasons that I write about is that at the time, uh, the dot-coms, the IT sector was a separate industry. Today, it's interwoven. Mm. So the crises that generate the worst recessions are the ones in which I said they drag down the banks, lead to country rescues. Um, and they all the ones I write about lead to a recession. And that's because it has widespread impact across the economy. And the dot-coms then, 20 years ago, could drive the U.S. economy down into a recession. Today, that potential is even greater because IT is much more spread across different parts of not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy. And so this is why watching what happens to the tech sector day, today is uh, is very important, I think. There's a huge, significant parallel to what happened 20 years ago. That's really interesting. And you write that all crises are ultimately the result of debt in some form or another. And that's exactly what you were just saying. Oh, massive debt pile that's been in the news the last couple of weeks. President Joe Biden, in the last 48 hours, signed a bill that suspends the U.S. government's $31.4 trillion debt ceiling, averting what would have been a first-ever default with only 48 hours to spare. So... You talk about credibility 
as as a real important tenet of weathering downturns, of weathering crises. What did this do to the U.S. credibility that we constantly kind of toe the line on this massive debt pile? Is it, an, is it analogous? Is that a good example? Or is it not quite relevant? Um, the I think the U.S. debt ceiling, um, actually, I think about in 2011 uh, was when S&P downgraded the U.S., even though they averted and they raised the debt ceiling at the time. So I think it's that kind of brinksmanship, which is not helpful. So the examples that I give in the book around credibility actually go all the way back to the 1930s uh, Great Depression. So the 1929 Great Crash, which is where I derived the three phases from, and that's where the lessons for the rest of the crises that came um, after it um, could learn from. The very first one is euphoria. In the 1920s, there was a big expectation of consumerization, electrification, automobiles everywhere. I mean, it was a very optimistic time and it was you know, invested into with lots of debt. Uh, the banks uh, went bankrupt um, as asset bubbles burst, not just in the stock market, but also in, um, in uh, you know, real estate. Um, but what turned the corner was the credibility of FDR. So he, in his famous fireside chat in 1933, um, he had reconstituted uh, the banks and he did a radio broadcast. These days it'd be a podcast, <laughs> perhaps, uh, where he said, believe me, when I say it'd be safer for you to put your money in a bank than under your mattress. And with that and the legislation that backed him up, um, uh, the month-long bank run that he had inherited um, turned into, when the banks reopened on Monday, people putting their money back into the bank. So he was credible, the policy was consistent, and it eventually not just reconstituted the banks, but brought in deposit insurance. So credibility, literally those people listening to him could have disbelieved him, in which case um, that would not have been the turning point of the Great Depression. And it took four years. So four years of misery for people. And that's how important credibility is um, and consistency. And these days, speed of resolution as well. So how would you characterize the 2023 debt crisis, debt ceiling crisis? Was it, was it speedy? Was it credible? Uh, so the debt ceiling is, it's not quite a financial crash in the way right. that I write about. So the debt ceiling is... The United States, um, you know, needing congressional approval in order to raise the amount of debt the federal government can incur. And this is, you know, uh, there's lots and lots of things to say about it, you know, about um, budgeting the deficit has accrued over time. This is, you know, it's not news that you need to raise the debt ceiling. And the U.S. is unusual in having a debt ceiling anyways. Mm. So it's not a financial crisis uh, crisis in the way that I write about. No, that. but it feels like it's part of the recipe that we're kind of sitting in of a really interesting dynamic stock market, high interest rates. It, it feels like it's, it's all we're all swimming in the same pool in the debt ceiling conversation sort of felt part of it to me, at least in the last last 10 days. Um, I want to switch gears and talk COVID-19 crisis, which you write about as being something that's been extremely unique in how we experienced it. But given the fact that we're expecting more pandemics, more probably climate-related shocks, we may again face kind of a global contraction overnight as we did with the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about that shock, that crisis, and what was learned? 
Yeah, and I think unfortunately you're probably right. I think um, this global pandemic was a once-in-a-century occurrence, um, but there's lots of uh, risk factors out there that we could again see a very similar kind of uh, crash. And in this sense, this was a crash because you also had a buildup in the U.S. For instance, there was a decade-long bull market um, that was running and running. Stock markets were. Uh, hitting record highs on the back of um, very low interest rates and lots of cash from uh, you know, various governments after the global financial crisis, which that was not going to go into housing. <laughs> so it ended up going into stocks. And um, it all came to an end because of um, the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, which is the first global pandemic since the Spanish flu of 1918. And there are parallels there. Uh, I don't really have time to go into, but I write about them in the book. Um, but just to say that the lesson from the crash is that the policies which were undertaken supported the economy so that the recovery was actually, um, it was a terrible pandemic, but the recovery meant that you didn't have people on you know, massive uh, job losses because there was income support. Um, to keep people attached to the labor force across pretty much all countries, liquidity support for viable businesses to keep them afloat. And so government action, which was quick, which dispersed funds uh, rapidly, um, that adds to the credibility of resolving the crisis. It wasn't enough to cushion the lockdowns the government imposed to try and control the virus, because that's what triggered both the stock market crash and, of course, um, the deep recessions. But the recovery was very strong as well. Um, and But the most important part of any recovery I write about is what happens to people's livelihoods, people's incomes, the least well-off were supported for the most part, and unemployment did not shoot up. And that, to me, is the most important lesson. The next time we have another pandemic or a global public health emergency or a climate crisis. You end the book on China, and China also handled the pandemic much differently from its global counterparts. You say that China has been relatively sheltered from the boom and bust cycles of other major economies, and it is now facing a potential housing meltdown or some other existential threat to its potential as the key economic driver for the global economy alongside the U.S. So big threat here. What, what is it that you're putting forward at the end of the book in terms of what the threat might be for the next big crash? So economists always advise you can either predict what is the next crash or when it's going to happen. <laughs> so I do the former, not the latter, because China may not actually be the next crash, may not even be the next next crash, but it will be a next great crash. In other words, it's overdue for a crash. It's mm -hmm. unusual to have grown for 40 years. China's an unusual economy, of course, with a degree of state control. However, now the property boom has all the characteristics that I've written about, a huge amount of leverage, a lack of credibility of the policies to deflate the property bubble, because the deflating the bubble was triggered actually by government policy, the government trying to control the leverage in the sector. Now, that's a very old tale as well, <laughs> is being unable to deflate a bubble um, and then seeing the consequences of that. So the lesson that I would hope that China would learn are essentially that, that their policies need to be credible to prevent the aftermath being a period of long stagnation 
and um, a banking crisis, which leads to the worst economic outcomes. The reason why I write about it um, is also because of how important China is in the world economy, not just as the world's you know, biggest trader or second biggest economy, but because of the number of countries it lends to. China is the world's biggest official lender, bigger than the World Bank, bigger than the Paris Club of 22 rich countries, bigger than the IMF. So 175 lending jurisdictions that are tracked by the Bank for International Settlements, which tracks 185, China is a major creditor. If it were to have a great crash and its banks start to pull back on its lending or calling its loans, it could actually trigger a developing market crash crisis. So international coordination, what other lenders can step in and assist those countries would be, I think, very crucial. And any tensions between China and other countries mustn't get in the way of that, because what you don't want is a great crash in China triggering the next global financial crisis for the poorest countries in the world. Dr. Linda Yu, thank you so much for being with me. Good talk. Thank you so much. Great questions. Appreciate it um, coming on. Thank you very much. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All that's left is to thank you and our production team. See you next week.